calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book Two, The Men of the Sea Chapter Eleven In which the Molly meets Elusive and Cygnus Astrea's days and nights blurred. When he was on watch, he had to walk back and forth to stay awake whatever the hour, and when Adramin had the ship, the task of working the stones continued, keeping Astrea in the forbidden room as much and more than he slept. More than once he dozed and nearly fell face forward into the plotting-table. When Kausor Mirak roused him from his brief opportunities to sleep in his bunk, he went to his next task in a fog of exhaustion, only able to do the next thing. All the while he was trying to ignore the growing conviction that his plan was hopeless and his efforts futile. Driven by a sense of urgency that Mufred might get to Lindy before him, Astrea hardly dared think of her, lest hoping too much might make him unlucky. Cam did the best he could to make him eat, but after a few days Peg's brew was the only thing he could stomach. The winds were only somewhat favourable, which meant that Cygnus had to tack at least twice each day and night to make her zigzag way toward Charton. Every trip to the Forbidden Room involved checking Elusive's position, knowing that Dabby was likely going through the same ritual to find out where Cygnus was heading. When he bent over the table, Astrea entered a game-like world wherein he and his cousins dueled blindfolded for the lead. Sometimes their course changes coincided, and he knew what Elusive was doing. More often Astrea had to roll the stones back and forth for some time to guess at the other ship's position and progress. Every time he relit the stones he could feel energy leave him. He had noticed the effect before when learning from Oron, but now that he was the only one to work the stones he felt drained at the end of each session even without the tension of planning the next move in his strategy. Whether or not it was his watch, he had to climb back up to the deck to see if he had chosen a heading that would get the best from the ship, and then recheck with the shipstone in the forbidden room to make sure it pointed the best course. Too close to the wind, and Cygnus lost speed. Too broad a reach, and Elusive was not making the best passage towards their destination. When he had the watch, he worried about the set of the sails. When Adramin was in charge, Astrea had to endure silent criticism. His cousin never said anything directly, but the bad grace with which he made the crew trim and retrim the sails made it clear that he thought Oron would have done a much better job of navigating. At their first meeting Adramin had been shocked that Astrea wore a clasp that had not been given him by Oron. When the master accepted that Astrea was all he claimed, Adramin had become prickly with resentment, testing his cousin's seamanship and courage at every opportunity. 
Now he acknowledged Estrella as if he were master, but he obviously resented it. Estrella was not sure what to make of the situation. Why had Mirac put Estrella into Oron's cloak? Had Adramin really needed to be tricked into doing the obvious? Since that night Estrella had become less sure about what Mirac had called Adramin's lapse of confidence. The storm had surely not been the worst that his cousin had seen in a lifetime at sea, and yet, as Estrella recalled, Adramin's words over Oron's body had not sounded like someone craving power so much as release from servitude. Estrella wondered about the role into which he had been thrust since Oron's death. Whether or not Oron merited the unswerving obedience of his crew, the old man had a lifetime of seamanship and authority behind him, which Estrella was acutely conscious that he could not hope to match. He also lacked Adramin's superior skills in ship-handling. As sailing-master and as Oron's grandson, Adramin commanded obedience from the crew, even though his grandfather had given him only a lesser stone. And when it came to navigation, Estrella knew that there was much that he did not know about the art of using the stones. He was also unsure whether he had been accepted by the crew on the slim evidence of his navigator's clasp and Peg's invocation of a myth about a chosen one. They obeyed him, but did they think him worthy of trust? He was not so sure himself. Estrella almost hoped Adramin would question his plan. So it went, day after night after day. Early on the fifth day, or was it the seventh, Cam gave him a mug of Peg's special brew as he went into the forbidden room. He was dreading another session of calculating Elusive's position and choosing when to come about in the long beat northward. Leaning against the edge of the circular plotting table where Oron had stood, Estrella sipped the hot drink and let his gaze rest on the glowing green stones drawing nearer to the fine line that marked the shore and their destination, Charton. He felt under the tabletop, searching for a ledge or shelf where he could put his mug before beginning to work the stones, and a knurled wheel turned under his fingers. The glowing line that marked the shore suddenly moved much closer to the centre of the plot. Astrea stared incredulously, rotated the wheel again, and saw the shoreline jump back to the edge of the tabletop. Oron lied, he said out loud, hearing his voice as if it came from someone else. He made it look as if we were much further out in the ocean. He filled in the rest of the thought, his lips moving soundlessly. That's why, when I was learning to navigate by the sun, he never plotted my calculations. He just rubbed them off the slate. He didn't want me to know where we really were. I can't believe it took me this long to work it out. He stood staring at the stones, transfixed by the realization that all the time he was learning about the arts of the men of the sea, Oron had been systematically deceiving him about distances, directions, and locations. A block thumped on the deck above him, jerking him back to the duty he had chosen and had to continue if Lindy were to be safe. Now that he could see from the plot that the shoreline was uncomfortably close, he took a deep breath and rolled the stones this way and that, but their brightness neither increased nor decreased. He could be sure only that Elusive was close and slightly to the east. From his experience at the City of the Sea, Estrella knew that as ships grew closer the stones were not as helpful in estimating distance and direction. But now he reasoned that Dabby and Muford must guess that Lindy's stone was at Charton. Estrella rolled her echo stone back and forth to decide when it was brightest. He stared at the plotting table, trying to think clearly. The clasp on his arm tingled. 
he rolled Lindy's echo stone once more, and thanks to the true position of the shoreline, he was suddenly certain that Lindy was somewhere at sea, quite close to both Cygnus and Elusive. Astrea shoved open the door of the forbidden room and almost ran back to the deck, without bothering to hide the stones under the table's cover. A hazy sun cast indistinct shadows down the length of the ship, which was moving steadily, close-hauled on the starboard tack. Astrea looked ahead and misgave. All he could see was a wall of white. He turned toward Adramin, who was frowning. Adramin, we should be seeing the shore soon. We can hang on for a little while, but we should be ready to jibe her around and head back to sea at a moment's notice. Reduce sail. Keep her maneuverable, Adramin muttered. Right. Um, make it so, if you please. Adramin strode off shouting orders, leaving Astrea wondering at his cousin's erratic moods. He glanced at the wheelhouse and saw Yed looking back at him between the spokes of the wheel, perhaps wondering what Astrea was thinking. Suddenly his left arm tingled. He shoved back his sleeve and stared at his stone. Its spear of light was wavering between the course he had set and a point ahead and to starboard. At that moment the fog-bank swallowed Cygnus' bow, and he could not see farther than the mizzenmast. He looked up and saw the topmasts fading into the white mist. Indecision left Astrea in the same instant. He was unreasonably certain that the stone on his arm was pointing him toward Lindy. Just a touch to starboard, please, Yed. Touch starboard. Enough. Steady as she goes. Dabby opened the door of Elusive's forbidden room, looked out cautiously, and then hurried down the passage to his cabin, where he knocked softly and entered. Becky sat on the bunk braiding her reddish hair. She dropped the comb, stood up, and kissed him with an urgency that made his heart hammer in his chest. For an instant he almost forgot why he was there. Still holding her close, he pulled his head back so that their lips parted and he could speak. "'Any moment now we'll be close to the stone my father's looking for. So will Cygnus. Stay below. You don't want to be part of what'll happen.' Becky stared into his eyes, confused as much by his tone as his words. Why? When my father wants something the way he does now, people die. And if Cygnus gets in his way—" She looked at him blankly, trying to make sense of what he was telling her so urgently. It'll be like Spindrift, all over again. Dabby, I don't understand. I told you. Spindrift was one of our ships. Her master, Alner, left the fleet, broke the law, and took his ship ashore. Mufrid made me find him. He killed Alner, and he did it slowly. He enjoyed doing it. Then he had his gang of hard men kill the Twister's crew. All of them. Men, women, children. All dead and burned. I saw it. You don't want to know any more. Becky stared at him, her eyes wide. Like he did at Teenmouth? Oh, worse. Much, much worse. Unable to convey the horrors he had seen, he looked away from her. She took his face in both of her hands, and turned his head so that he looked into her eyes once more. Why did he do it? she asked. To punish Alner, to get the shipstone and the commander's bracelets. But he didn't get the boat commander's lesser clasps and rings. They all drowned their stones. When he found out, Mufred went crazy, and the killing began. He got the shipstone. But Alner's clasp died when he did. Mufrid wore it anyway. 
He probably killed Estrella trying to get it started again, and it still won't work properly. It's not strong enough. Or he isn't. Or something. I don't know, but he can somehow feel when he's close to another stone, and it makes him crazy. Like he was with the spindrift. Dabby felt Becky's hands on his face, tipping his head back to hers. It wasn't you, Dabby. You didn't. I took him there, Becky. I worked the stones to find spindrift, and I devoutly wish I hadn't. You didn't know what he was going to do. I should have, and I shouldn't have told him where Cygnus is going. Now there's going to be more dead. I can't stop him. I can't. Becky shook him as he started to spiral into incoherence. You said Strayer and his ship are close. They'll help. Dabby looked up, anchoring himself to her eyes. If Strayer's still alive, Mufred probably killed him when he took the light from his stone. So it could be that Adraman's just using his ringstone to follow us. Does your f mm, does Mufred know that the other ship is close? No, I didn't tell him. Stealing power from Estrella didn't work the way he hoped. He can't work the shipstone the way I do. He can't even get into the forbidden room. Maybe he's guessed that Cygnus is close. That's why you've got to come with me. It's the only place you'll be safe. He tugged her hand away from his face and pulled her toward the door. What about the others, the Teamouth boys? Come on, Becky, he pleaded. I can't go in there. Everyone says everyone's wrong. It's just that nobody but me can open the door. Hand in hand, they left the cabin and hurried along the passage. On the deck of Elusive, Mufrid stared into the fog, wondering why his left arm was tingling below the clasp he had stolen. Was it because Cygnus was near, or was it because of the stone that had been Gianfar's? He could see nothing on either side, save for the low grey waves fading into the white blur that surrounded the ship. The sails hung like wet washing, dripping onto the deck. Only experience told him that Elusive was moving at all. Mufrid gnawed at the nail of his left thumb caught himself at it, thrust his hands into his pockets, and glared around him at the men on deck, who were prudently looking anywhere but at him. Aroused by a shout from the bow lookout, he took two quick strides to the port side, leaned over the rail, and wiped away the droplets of mist that hung on his eyelashes. He was taking a breath to shout abuse at the sailor, when something solid appeared through the grey, shifting fog. He looked again, and recognised the molly. Mufrid looked down on startled faces, staring back at him from the little boat's cockpit. Before they disappeared into the fog astern of Elusive, Mufrid was shouting orders. Hard a port! Jibe ho! That was the scum-sucker who knifed me, said Red Ian, climbing onto the molly's cabin top and staring astern into the fog. Mufrid, said Walt, he'll be back. "'This time we're going to be ready for that rotten pirate,' said Roaring Jack. "'Are you planning to attack a ship of that size?' asked Lindy. "'Too right,' roared the skipper. "'I'm going after Cam and Yan, and you're coming with me, Red. "'You, Damon, stay aboard with Skarm, and you too, lass. "'You'll be safe enough here.' Spit flew from his mouth, most of it landing in his beard. This is insane. He's definitely not rational, Lindy muttered. Don't you want to find Estrella? Damon asked. Of course I do. But the skipper doesn't. He's only looking for Yan and Cam. He and Red are going to attack a huge ship filled with who knows how many men. 
not just two of them. I'm in. It's going to be a real fight. He was breathing quickly, and his eyes were wide. He slid his knife in and out of its sheath. Lindy took a breath to argue, and saw that it would be useless. Let's have your lead-line, Skarm, and a couple of boat-hooks. Where's Walt? Walt emerged from the cabin with his pack in one hand. Skarm was behind him carrying a bait-bucket full of stones, which he passed up to Red Ian on the cabin roof before climbing out of the crowded cockpit to join him. "'She's back,' said Skarm calmly. "'She's coming up on our starboard side.' Elusive ghosted into sight out of the fog. Though her sails hung slack, and her black bows hardly rippled the smooth swells, she was upon the molly in moments. Red Ian and Skarm thrust the boom to port, so that the huge hull would not run them down. Lindy looked up at a cluster of hard-faced men, who were dropping a heavy net over the sea-stained side of the ship. Then she staggered as the black hull struck the molly a glancing blow that would have stove in a less sturdy boat. The skipper swung the lead in a murderous arc, and threw it at the faces that were now close enough to be seen as individuals. "'Gimme back, my lads!' Lindy saw two heads duck, and three other faces react with surprise at the ferocity in this bellow. She picked up her staff from the cockpit sole where Walt had stowed it, and prepared to defend herself. Roaring Jack and Red Ian both leaped from the molly to the scrambling net, yelling incoherent abuse. The first black-clad figure to react swung a long oar at Roaring Jack's head as he started to climb. The blade curved through the air above Lindy, but before it could strike, she poked her staff up into its way, deflecting the blow. Damon's hand snatched at his belt, and his knife glittered in the air. Lindy saw the man's hands clutch at his throat, blood jetting through his fingers, his mouth open in a soundless scream. As he fell, Elusive's crewman hesitated, and in that moment Red Ian and Roaring Jack swarmed over the rail. The men who a few moments before had expected to attack an easy prey now found themselves defending their ship. They brandished their knives, but retreated as two big men rushed at them, their boat-hooks slashing in murderous arcs. One of the knife-men tried to follow his original plan. He swung out from the ship on a rope that began high in the mist, and slid down swiftly toward the molly's deck. Lindy stabbed her staff upwards between his legs. The man grunted, swore, and slid downwards out of control. Instead of landing on the molly's deck, he smashed against his own ship's side, and screamed as his ankles were crushed when the two vessels ground against each other a second time. They separated, the molly swayed, and he slid down the rope between the two of them. When they bumped together again, his screaming ended in a gurgle. "'Need another knife, lad?' said Walt. He passed Damon a wicked-looking weapon from his pack, reached into it again, and brought out four small earthenware pots. "'Skipper! Red! Duck!' He lobbed two of the pots upward, one after the other. Lindy heard them smash onto Elusive's deck. Brown smoke rose, met the damp air, and hung there. She heard shouts mingled with coughing, and she recognized the smell as the same formula Gar had used. Walt threw his last two pots, one toward the stern, the other at the bow. Shouts of fire, fire, turned back some of the men who were about to come over the rail toward the molly. Orange flames started up one of the staysails. A crew member dashed a bucket of water at it, spreading the fire even more quickly. Boredom! yelled a voice on elusive. Get me the one with the clasp! Two men who had avoided Roaring Jack and Red Ian's attack started down the net. Their backs were turned to the Molly's crew, making them easy prey. 
Skarm threw a fist-sized stone, and the first fell, striking his head on the molly's bow and vanishing into the sea. Lindy jabbed the other in the kidneys. When he turned and hung by one hand, flailing at her with his knife, she swung her staff and connected with the back of his hand. His knife fell, and he scrambled one-handedly back aboard his ship. "'Let's do it, lad,' said Walt to Damon. He leaped across the arm's length of water between the two vessels, Damon a heartbeat behind. Together they clambered up the net. When Damon was able to look over the ship's rail, he saw the broad backs of Red Ian and Roaring Jack, still shouting, their boat-hooks walloping back and forth at head height, keeping at bay five black-clad men wielding knives. Walt produced a bottle from his pocket and threw it ahead of Roaring Jack and Red Ian. There was a loud explosion, and two of the men fell to the deck. One of them struggled to his knees only to catch Roaring Jack's boat-hook across his face before he fell forward, blood pouring between his fingers as he tried to staunch the flow. The other started to crawl along the deck, his knife aimed at Roaring Jack's legs. Before Damon could move or shout, Walt charged between the two red-haired men. There was a moment of confused struggling, and then Walt stood, holding the victim over his head. With a huge shout he threw the struggling body at the remaining knife-men bowling two of them over. Roaring Jack and Red Ian advanced in a wild, yelling, head-cracking assault. Damon took two paces toward Red Ian, stamped on an outstretched hand that was clutching for a fallen knife, kicked at the man's bloody face, and then shoulder-rolled out of the way of Roaring Jack's boat-hook. When he was back on his feet, he faced a new assailant, a lean, black-haired man whose knife was almost touching his own. "'The clasp! Give me the clasp with the stone!' The man's voice sounded almost friendly, despite the situation and the knife he held. Damon hesitated, and the man's knife slid up his right arm, ripping the shirt and slashing the skin. Before Damon could react, the man was back to the guard position. Blood dripping from his outstretched arm, Damon blinked at the crouching figure and tried to recover. He flicked the knife to his left hand, reversing his stance as he did so. "'Not quick enough! The stone!' When the man's knife sliced his other forearm, Damon dropped, rolled, and came up running. He dashed along the port scuppers toward the bow of the ship, blood dripping from both his hands onto the deck, his attacker close behind him. Walt thumped ponderously after both of them. "'Just the ones in black!' he shouted. "'The others won't fight!' If Roaring Jack and Red Ian heard, they gave no indication. Their initial furious assault had advanced over the bodies of the fallen, giving no quarter. Roaring Jack's boat-hook snapped on one man's shoulder. The skipper scooped up the broken pieces and went for his victim in a two-handed assault, the hook-end held like a knife and the other as a club. The remaining knife-men tried to circle around the two attackers. Red Ian's boat-hook caught one by the neck of his jacket and hauled him close. The man tried to use his knife, but the big man was quicker. He caught the sailor's wrist, bent it back, and head-butted him in the face. Blood squirted from a broken nose and the man fell to his knees, gasping. Another man fell forwards over him, both hands frantically trying to keep Roaring Jack's boat-hook from plunging into his stomach. Another lunged at the skipper's back, but Red Ian dropped his weapon, seized the man by the slack of his black jacket, and threw him into the sea as easily as if he had been a cat. When Red turned, looking for a fresh assailant, he saw only sailors in brown clothing, scurrying to toss Walt's smoke-pots over the side and cut away the burning sail. Red Ian picked up his boat-hook and leaned on it, as Roaring Jack's fist clouted his last victim to the deck. 
Estrella saw Elusive's bowsprit first, its jib tapering upward into the fog. As it neared, he saw brown smoke billowing over the deck and pouring over the ship's starboard side to hang above the water in a dirty smudge. His arm tingled again. He hesitated, and Adraman took a step forward, Mirak at his shoulder. "'Starboard a spoke, steersman,' said Adraman. "'We'll take her on our port side. Arm yourselves. Prepare to defend the ship.' Estrella had lost control of Cygnus. Adraman had let him do the navigating, and now he had assumed command with the ease of someone executing a well-thought plan. He was no longer even pretending to consult or follow orders. Estrella didn't care. His whole attention was given over to the tingling that was coming from his clasp. He left his position beside the wheelhouse and ran forward under the main boom. He pushed through a knot of men and stopped dead. Just above eye height, flattened against a ship's rail, was the same mainsail on whose gaff he had stood one arm around the mast when he had guided the molly into Teenmouth. He tried to look down into the little boat, but could see nothing for the boat's sail. He thrust against materials stained with salt to no avail. To his right, Cam climbed over the rail and slid down onto the molly's stern. "'Cam!' Estrella shouted as the small figure took two strides across the molly's stern deck and scrambled up the net onto Elusive. Then, as the molly's gaff was about to tangle Cygnus' shrouds, Estrella climbed onto the rail, reached for the masthead, stepped onto the jaws of the gaff, and hung on as the boat lurched under him. Below him the boom thumped over to starboard, the gaff following it. He looked down between his feet at the cabin top and saw Skarm, lying on his side, his good hand holding a knife-point upwards. Then the molly lurched back towards Cygnus. Estrella clutched at the truck, but the topping lift from the masthead to the gaff pushed him in the chest. He lost his grip. His foot slipped, and he sagged helplessly backwards. An instant of weightlessness, a convulsive twist, a wild kick, and Estrella was over the Cygnus rail and back aboard his ship, on his hands and knees. Estrella slapped the deck in frustration. His clasp was like fingernails digging into his arm. When Cam saw Estrella step onto the molly's yard, he went over the side, lowered himself onto the devil plank, clutched at the molly's port stay, and swung down hand over hand onto the cabin top in time to duck the boom that crashed into the face of the black-clad sailor from Elusive. When two quick glances told him that both Skarm and the blonde woman were safe, Cam leaped onto the scrambling net, expecting to meet Estrella when he stepped aboard Elusive in the same way he had left Cygnus. Instead, he found himself looking at the broad backs of Red Ian and Roaring Jack. Lindy looked up as Elusive's main boom struck the molly's mast and more ropes snaked down from above. Three more men descended feet first, one onto the top of the cabin, two toward the cockpit. She swung her staff upward and felt it crack against something that might have been a shin. A man in black landed awkwardly on one foot and clutched at her. A stone thrown by Skarm glanced off his temple, and he fell over the side. Lindy swung her staff at shoulder level at a second man descending into the cockpit. She put everything she could into a wicked sweep, but the man dodged, and when her blow encountered nothing but air, she turned herself around. She dropped onto one knee to recover her balance, and poked blindly with the point of her staff. Instead of the jolt of impact, she felt it grabbed and yanked away from her. Lindy did not let go. Jerked sideways, she tripped over a body lying on the cockpit sole, and her ribs thumped painfully into the tiller. 
She still held on, but now the man stood in the cockpit using her weapon against her, shoving her backwards and twisting the wood in her hands. She pushed back, gripping her staff with both hands, trying to relieve the unrelenting pressure, but her attacker used his weight to lean down on her, cramming her into the corner of the cockpit. Lindy looked up along her staff and saw uneven teeth set in a savage grin. Then the molly lurched, and the boom swung over her head. Gathering speed as it passed over the cockpit, it took the man full in the face. He fell back, his head thudded against Elusive's hull, and he disappeared into the sea. "'Thanks, Garm!' Lindy shouted. "'Twarn't me, lass!' "'Cam!' said a voice over her head. She looked up to see a man clad in black from head to toe. She clutched at her staff, saw a face above her, and her mouth fell open in astonishment. Astrea? The molly heeled violently to port. Lindy grabbed at the cockpit rail. Her voice was lost in the sounds of men fighting. Skipper! Roaring Jack turned slowly and saw Cam looking up at him, wide-eyed on a deck patched with bodies and bloodstains. "'Nice work, Skipper, Red,' said Cam, cautiously staying out of reach. He had drastically revised his opinion of two men who he'd always thought of as basically gentle and just a little slow on the uptake. "'Cam, where'd you spring from? Get aboard the molly with Lindy!' "'Skipper, the molly's been boarded.' "'Not for long, she ain't. Find Yan!' "'Go to it, lads. I got the molly.' "'Red and me'll find him, Skipper,' said Cam. Then he turned to Red Ian. "'There's prisoners below, and I know where they are, but there's locked doors, too.' Red Ian first shook his head as if waking from sleep, and then nodded. Boat hook at the ready, he followed Cam down the forward companionway into the belly of the ship. "'Get off me boat!' Lindy heard Roaring Jack bellowing, but because she could not see for the molly's sail, she guessed he was still unelusive. The only person in sight was Skarm. The old sailor leaned against the mast, blood running from a cut along his forehead. Behind and above him, smoke drifted over the foredeck of Elusive, as men struggled to lower a burning staysail. "'I'm coming, Skarm,' said Lindy, as she clambered onto the cabin roof. Strong hands grabbed Astrea's arms and stood him upright on the deck of Cygnus. "'Mirak and Adamin's gone over to the sieve,' said Bettel. "'Gone over?' Astrea repeated, staring at Lucif's deck, wondering if Adramin had changed sides. When he looked back, Bettel had vanished. Above him, sails shook, spilling wind. On the deck around him, men and women milled about, some staring at the molly and elusive, some standing waiting for orders, a few poised to climb over the rail. Estrella saw a knife flash. Two men held mauls, and one brandished an oversized marlinspike. They looked at him for orders. He spoke without thinking. "'Grapple that boat alongside us. Don't let elusive get it!' Several sailors moved to obey. The molly's masthead and sail were now well out of reach. The boat had drifted away from Cygnus and lay, sails slack, in a wedge of water between the two big ships. Astrea shook his head, suddenly aware that his right hand was clenched on his left arm, where the stone tingled against the skin under his jacket. He saw Bettel staring at him. Cygnus shuddered, and they both looked astern at the same moment. Elusive's bowsprit was grating along the quarter-deck rail, and a black-clad figure was using it to cross towards them. 
On Elusive's foredeck men had thrown grappling hooks onto Cygnus and were manhandling a gangway into position as the gap between the ships closed. "'Repel boarders and stand by the jibe!' Bettle yelled. Estrella pounded along the deck, caught the edge of the wheelhouse door in one hand and swung inside. "'Yed!' he began. The wheel was untended, its spokes wavering back and forth. The body of the old steersman lay face down at its foot. The deck around him was dark with blood. Aboard Elusive, Adraman made his way down the aft companionway and pounded on the door of the forbidden room. Dab! It's Draman! The door swung open, and Dabby looked out cautiously. When he saw Adraman, he stepped forward to him and clutched his arm. He's doing it again, Draman. He's not right in his head. He's got to be stopped, or— Get aboard the Cygnus, Dab! Adraman ran up the companionway, took a quick look around, saw only bodies on the deck, and shouted down at Dabby, "'Go now!' Dabby hesitated, ran back into the forbidden room, paused by the plotting-table, then grabbed Becky by the hand and dragged her up with him toward the companionway. Only Lindy and Skarm were aboard the Molly, which slid astern until it was at the wide end of the V of water between the two ships, close to elusive stern. Lindy, her staff in one hand, scrambled onto the cabin top and bent over the old man. Blood streamed across his forehead and into his eyes, where his efforts to wipe it away had blotched and streaked his face. Lindy ripped at the hem of her dress and pulled off a hand's width of material. She located the cut a little above his left eye, where the blood was still flowing, and bound it tight. Then she noticed he was pressing his crippled arm against his body to keep a second cut closed. She tore another wider strip off her dress, doubled it, helped Skarm into a sitting position, and secured the material around him, shirt and all. "'Thanks, lass,' he began, and then his tone changed. "'Watch out!' A pair of legs appeared below the boom, their owner's body and head concealed behind the sail. Lindy snatched up her staff. The boom swung across the cockpit as the newcomer pushed it out of his way. Bare feet shuffled along the cockpit, combing towards the bow. Lindy went down on one knee and poised her staff to stab as the man came around the mast. She lunged and then jerked back just before her blow landed in Roaring Jack's stomach. "'Easy, lass! It's me!' Roaring Jack's voice was almost normal now that his rage was spent. "'Skipper, we're—' "'Skarm, you're hurt. How bad is it?' "'He's got a cut on his head and another across his ribs, but they're not deep, and I've bound them up. Roy, lass, now you and me get the molly free of these here ships so we can get out of here when the lads come back aboard. And you too, Skarm, let's have you in the cockpit on the tiller if you can handle it. Don't fuss about me, Skipper. Roaring Jack and Lindy helped Skarm down into the cockpit, where he wedged himself into the starboard quarter and took the tiller under his good arm. From this position, and with his eyes cleared of blood, he was able to look around. There's a makeshift gangway between the two ships, and there's a slew of them crossed over. But they don't look like they're attacking, more like they're running away. Any of them in black? asked Roaring Jack, as he leaned on a long oar to keep the molly from grinding against the elusive. None I can see, said Lindy. Are you all right, Skipper? I am that, lass, said Roaring Jack. Red and me pretty much cleared the deck of the knife men. Don't ask me how. Waltz somewhere's aboard. Reds we cam. They're below, looking for Yan. So we need to get close to that scrambling net. 
the first of three grappling-hooks arced through the air from Cygnus and thumped into the Molly's cockpit. Lindy tossed the closest back into the sea, and Roaring Jack did the same for the other two. "'Not much wind between these two great ships,' said Scar. "'But if we back the main, we could get clear of both of them.' "'We can't leave without the others.' "'Aye, lass, but we can't help any of them if we're all tied up.' "'Wait a bit, Scarm. I think that's calm.' What little wind there was now held the Molly's sail to starboard, obscuring elusive from Scarm and Lindy's side of the boat. Standing beside the mast, the skipper bundled the jib in one hand and took stock of the situation. "'It's calm right enough. Red, too. Let her come back to starboard. We'll take him aboard.' Lindy ducked as another grappling hook thumped into the cockpit, dragged past her feet, and stuck under the cockpit combing. Confused shouting came from both ships on either side. "'Here, lass, cut it free. My knife—ah, oh, my knife's in the sod who cut me. Hand-axe below the tiller, and get me another boat-hook.' Lindy found the hatchet and cut away the grapple, dived into the cabin, grabbed a long-handled fish-gaff, and passed it handle-first up to Roaring Jack, who was standing on the cabin roof. "'Stay where you're at, lass. There's more of em coming down we read. Cam says they're friendly, but watch em. Lindy's lips moved in a silent curse as she realized that she had left her staff on the cabin top. She looked up the companionway steps as the cockpit filled with feet and legs. "'What about Damon?' she shouted, but no one paid any heed. Estrella reached over Yed's body, took hold of the wheel by its top spoke, and swung it to port. The wheel spun out of his hands, cracking his knuckles, and kept on spinning. Ahead of the wheel a rope's end flapped, where a continuous loop should have led down to the steering gear below decks. Behind him a voice spoke slowly and with relish. "'So, lubber-boy, what are you going to do now?' Mufrid leered at him from the wheelhouse doorway. Behind him men were leaping down from Elusive's bowsprit and crossing the gangway onto Cygnus Port Quarter. The black figure stood almost casually, but the knife that dangled from his right hand dripped blood from its tip. Astrea's own knife was in his hand before Mufrid could raise his arm. "'So, he has a knife. Come on out, little sprog. Uncle Mufrid will show you a trick or two. "'Give us some room. My nephew wants to play.' He backed cat-like out of the wheelhouse door, beckoning with the fingers of his left hand, as if to a baby. Mistrea waited until Mufrid had almost disappeared, then sprang over the bloodied deck and out the door. He landed in a fighting crouch, his knife held low. Mufrid's angular body compacted into the attack position, and he barked a mirthless laugh. "'Ha! The lad thinks he knows how to fight!' This is going to be a pleasure. When I'm finished with you, I'll have two ships and another class. Almost as satisfying as getting rid of Gianfar and that preening, prancing crowd-pleaser, your father. He tried to shove me out of the running to command a ship, but I ditched him and his cousin, too. You're next. Estrella heard Mufrid's taunting and locked it away, turning his anger into fuel for the fight. He circled around Mufrid to the left, forcing Mufrid to turn to his right. The man's dark eyes narrowed, but he continued to smile and jeer. "'Smart move, little fellow. Or maybe it's just that you're stupid, like that friend of yours.' 
What's his name? Yam? Ian? Yan. Astrea moved deliberately, feeling the deck under his feet, looking past the circling tip of Mufred's knife, determined not to be distracted by what Mufred was saying. From Astrea's time-altered point of view, they were moving slowly, step by balanced step, mirroring each other's movements. Astrea's concentration was so tightly coiled he could have drawn each position of Mufrid's body from the set of his shoulders to the angle of his knees. Yan's been having a bad time lately. He's probably dead by now. But while he could still talk, he told me all kinds of things about the village, about him, and about you. How you fought on a beach, how he smacked you with an oar at Teenmouth. Astrea heard Mufrid's talking, but the words were distant, unrelated to the moment, and he did not attend to them until the last five. Oh, yes, and how your mother died. He blinked, and Mufrid attacked. Astrea pulled his head back from the knife-thrust aimed for his eyes, and slashed at Mufrid's stomach. Both of them narrowly missed their targets. They continued to circle, moving smoothly, step-matching step. He put a stone on her chimney. Wilfrid continued, as if making pleasant conversation. She smothered, and nobody knows except you and me and Yan. Of course, he really doesn't know much of anything now. This time the words were clear. Astrea reacted in spite of himself and nearly launched the attack Mufrid was waiting for. Mufrid saw the hesitation and subtly altered his stance. Astrea saw Mufrid's right shoulder roll downward, almost imperceptibly before he lunged towards Astrea's midsection, thrusting forward, his back leg fully extended. Astrea was ready, but only just. Pivoting on his left leg, he turned, hollowed his stomach to avoid the attacking blade, and at the moment when Mufrid was almost at full reach, struck down at Mufrid's hand. Astrea's blade missed its mark, but the knife's pommel slammed into the wrist that held it, and Mufrid's weapon fell to the deck. Now, Strayer, finish him! Damon's voice stole Astrea's concentration. He stared at Mufrid's empty hands, unable to press home his advantage. His mind flashed back to when Damon had told him that knife-fighting has no rules. The lapse was more than long enough for Mufrid to snatch up his knife and launch a furious counter-attack. He strode forward recklessly, his knife slashing from side to side, the blade a blur. Astrea retreated swiftly, circling to his right. Behind him, men tried to get out of his way, but others were behind them, trying to see what was happening. Somehow, Astrea avoided being driven into them, only to feel his foot touch the scupper's edge. He was cornered in the starboard quarter, his back against the ship's rail, unable to manoeuvre. Sensing victory, Mufrid showed his teeth in a wolfish grin. "'He's mine!' A squat body dropped from Elusive's bowsprit, which was half across Cygnus' stern. A huge fist smashed upwards into Mufrid's ear, so hard that Astrea heard the jaw crack. Walt drove forward with all his low-slung, compact weight, ramming Mufrid against the stern post, where he slumped forward, the wind driven out of him. Walt's big hand seized a wrist and slammed it into the ship's rail. Mufrid's knife flew end over end into the air, glinting in the wan sunlight, and fell into the sea. Walt spun Mufrid round, seized him by the belt, and lifted him above the ship's rail. 
Walt's throw and Mufrid's desperate kick combined to launch him at Elusive's bow, which was now at a right angle to Cygnus' stern. Arms windmilling, Mufrid grasped desperately at the bowsprit. His outstretched hands missed the spar, but as he fell towards the sea, one of his legs hooked over the bobstay, and he slid, crotch-first, into the dolphin-striker above the knife-like bow. Astraea slowly lowered his knife and stood blinking as his time-sense returned to normal. "'That's got to smart, and it's getting him right where he's been deserving it for a very long time. Course, if it had happened earlier, maybe I wouldn't be here. Do you mean to kill the rotter? Mm, no, not really. Well, not now. This is the next best thing. Look at him. He's getting back aboard. Mufrid's black-clad body was silhouetted against the whiteness of the fog as he clambered onto the bobstay, steadied himself against the dolphin striker, climbed onto the bowsprit, and regained the deck of his ship. Straya! Astraea swung round and saw Damon among the men who were still standing like spectators to a game that had ended unexpectedly. Damon! It was you! I thought I was hearing things. How did you get here? That man in black chased me. Why didn't you do him when you had the chance? He cut you? Too right he did. He thought I had a bracelet like yours. Damon, where's Lindy? She's down there, on the— Find her, Damon! Tell her I'm— then come with me, Estrella, and we'll— Listen, lads, this ain't the time for conversation, said Walt. Estrella looked over Walt's shoulder at the people who had streamed onto Cygnus across the hastily rigged gangway, which, as space between the ships widened, had slid down elusive side into the sea. There were now twice as many people on Cygnus as before the fight began, and there was no way of telling what the newcomers had in mind. Right, shouted Walt. "'Anyone looking for a fight?' The leaders hesitated, and then staggered as those behind pushed them forward. They looked at Astraea and Walt, and then at several determined-looking crewmen, armed with an assortment of knives and clubs. "'Didn't think so,' said Walt. Adramin shouldered his way through the press of newcomers, Mirak a pace behind him. He'd been the last across the improvised bridge between the ships. "'We've found some more crew.' he said to Betel, ignoring Astraea completely. Hurry! One hand holding the net, hanging from elusive side, Roaring Jack encouraged two boys and their mother to follow Cam down into the molly. Where are you folks from? Scarm asked. The woman climbed down onto the deck of the molly and looked into his blood-smeared face. She gasped and almost lost her balance. Teen Mouth! said one of the boys. We were kidnapped. They killed my father, said the youngest. Red! How many more? Just two youngsters. And me, I think. Well, get your ass down here and help me shove off. Wait! Damon's shout made them all look up to where he was waving from Cygnus' deck, unsure how to get down without falling into the sea. Lindy saw that one of the grapples was still caught around the Molly's port stay. She yanked at it, and discovered it was still attached to the ship. Damon! Slide down this rope! Damon did not hesitate. In a palm-searing slide, he was in the crowded cockpit. Behind him, Skarm tossed the grapple into the sea. Wait for Estrella! gasped Damon, as Cygnus, Elusive, and the Molly slid apart. 
Above Estrella's head a sail flapped. He looked up and saw the canvas bellying into a smooth curve. The last tendrils of mist cleared away to seaward, trailing behind the retreating fog-bank. Overhead was deep blue sky. Then he saw the line of cliffs, toward which Cygnus was heading, picking up speed as she went. "'Adramin!' Astraea shouted, pointing ahead. Adramin elbowed his way ruthlessly through the crowd of people to Astraea's side. "'Why don't you just jibe her around?' Astraea did not trouble to argue. "'Mirak! Battle! The steering gear is cut!' A mocking laugh floated across the widening distance between the ships as Elusive sailed toward the fog-bank. Betel ran for the stern companionway. "'Mufrit!' muttered Adramin. "'We're going ashore the hard way. He'll never fix it in time.' A huge voice from the molly made everyone look to port. "'Pass us a line from your bow!' Adamin was running forward while Astraea was still staring down at the press of people aboard the molly. "'Luff your sails!' roared the mighty voice again. "'Do it!' Astraea shouted at two of Cygnus' crew who were standing nearby. With her largest sails spilling wind, Cygnus no longer increased speed, but she still moved inexorably toward a shore on which Astraea could see individual trees and rocks. On the foredeck, Adramin and two sailors struggled with a coil of rope. They ducked as Skarm's lead-line arced above them and thudded onto the deck, where Mirak retrieved it. Adramin ran forward to retrieve the weight, and connected its line to the coil of heavier rope that the sailors were flaking out on the deck. Astraea looked to port and saw that the Molly's cockpit had emptied of all but three of the people who moments before had filled it almost solid. Roaring Jack was at the tiller, waving his hands and shouting, and he saw Red Ian's big body on the foredeck, hauling in the heaving line, hand over hand. The tow-rope splashed down from Cygnus' bow into the sea, disappeared below the waves, and a few moments later reappeared dripping aboard the molly. "'Give us as much rope as you got, and belay your end right solid!' Estrella grinned, despite the urgency. He knew Adramin would not appreciate such obvious advice from the skipper of a coastal fishing-boat. The molly gathered way on the port tack, the tow-rope trailing after her. Aboard Cygnus, Crewman paid out the rope over the side. Astraea took a step toward the rail to see who was making the belay that Roaring Jack wanted, and saw that his cousin was astride the bowsprit, making the tow-rope fast where it would have the greatest turning force. He was just in time. The rope slid forwards across the foredeck and drew taut, almost jerking Adramin into the sea. Behind him, sailors let fly the jib and mizzen-sheets. At first, Estrella could not detect any change in the Cygnus' progress towards the shore. Then, as he sighted along the bowsprit, he saw boulders on the shore slowly disappearing behind the flapping jib. He glanced at the molly, now well clear of Cygnus, her sails filled by the freshening breeze. Skarm had the tiller and Roaring Jack had joined Red Ian on the long oars to help the little boat on her way. Aboard Cygnus, Adramin clambered back onto the foredeck and stood looking up at the sails, waiting for the moment when they would fill on the other side. A faint voice came from below the wheelhouse. "'She's hard over. Can you hear me?' Estrella ran to the wheelhouse, stepped around the steerman's body. The wheel spun slowly to port. "'That you, Betel? Under your feet!' We've got her jury-rigged, for now, anyway. How's she heading?" Estrella sighted along the centre-line of the ship. As he looked, Cygnus swung farther to port, and for the first time he saw sea ahead instead of cliffs. The ship was parallel with the shore, drifting, 
her mast straight up and down. Then his view was suddenly cut off as the foresail snapped across with a series of flaps and thuds. "'Jibe the main!' Andromin and Mirak shouted at the same time. Four sailors began hauling the boom to starboard to reduce the shock of the jibe when the biggest sail on the ship swung across. The sail filled suddenly, the boom kicked upwards, tugging two men off their feet, and then slammed to starboard with a jerk that made the mast tremble. "'What now?' Batel's voice came from below the steering wheel. "'Steady!' Estrella shouted as Cygnus continued to turn. Then, as she started to gather way on the port tack, and the cliffs were almost astern, he yelled, "'Amidships!' Then he nearly fell, as the ship touched bottom, hesitated, touched again, and then scraped free. He held his breath and counted, allowing two heartbeats to pulse at his throat before each count. When he reached three, he started to hope. When three more passed, and Cygnus was still gathering speed toward the open sea, he joined in the cheer that rose from the people massed on the deck. "'We've cast off! Hope you liked your toe!' Roaring Jack's voice came across the water as Cygnus approached the molly and began to overhaul the little boat. Astrea leaned over the rail on Cygnus' port side, looking down at Red Ian's upturned face. "'Strea! By all that's holy, is that you?' Before Astrea could answer, Adramun was beside him, shouting, "'We're grateful!' Roaring Jack looked up at Astrea, frowned, and deliberately turned his back. Red Ian said something Astrea could not hear. Then the big man turned away from his skipper and shouted, "'You got one of our people aboard!' As the two vessels passed each other, Estrella moved along the rail, trying to see into the Molly's cabin. His arm still tingled. Crew members stepped back out of his way. Behind him, Adramin continued to talk to Roaring Jack. "'We'll get clear of the shore, heave to, and you can come alongside so we can thank you.' "'Done!' roared the skipper. Behind him, Astrea heard old Pig's creaky voice. "'Nah, there's a fellow with some sense in his head, and a fine, strong pair of lungs, too.' Astrea stood with his mouth open, taking stock. Adramin was in command of Cygnus, as if the days of journeying north had never happened. His mother was dead, murdered by Yan, who was beyond revenge, beyond justice, murdered by Mufrid and he no longer knew where to look for Lindy. You have been listening to the Astrea Trilogy, Book Two, The Men of the Sea, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial, No Derivatives 3.0